Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Avi Schlein, and I was asked to chair this meeting, and I accepted the invitation with great alacrity, because I think we're going to have a most interesting um, talk and a discussion afterwards. Uh, this talk is um, hosted, it's held under the auspices of the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's, at, uh, at the LAC. <laughs> I'm sorry. I made, it's a Freudian sleep because I belong to the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's, uh, and I uh, am very happy to um, celebrate and help inaugurate the Middle East Center at LAC. In fact, I did so quite formally a couple of weeks ago. It was the official inauguration of the Middle East Center. There was a seminar on the changing geopolitical landscape in the Middle East. Patrick Seal, who is here, one of, was one of the two uh, speakers, and I was a commentator. This is one of the other events held under the auspices of the new uh, center. Uh, I was a student here 40 years ago. I did the MSc in International Relations, and in those days there was no Middle East Center. So this is a very welcome uh, development. Uh, and um, there, was a lot, there is a lot of talent in different parts of the LAC, and the Middle East Center would be able to draw on all this talent from different departments, from international relations, international history, government, anthropology, and so on. And the director of the center is Professor, Professor Fawaz Gerges, and I'm sure that under his leadership, the center will quickly establish it itself as one of the main forums for study and discussion and research about the contemporary uh, Middle East. Every Middle East center, in my experience, encounters one issue which is particularly divisive and particularly controversial, and that is the Arab-Israeli conflict. And um, it seems to me that whatever our loyalties, whatever our affiliations, we should approach this conflict as academics, as scholars, with mutual tolerance, with, ba with that balance, because some of the discussions on the Arab-Israeli conflict generate more heat than light. And today we have a speaker, Mr. Henry Siegman, who I'm sure will live up to all these injunctions, and he will most certainly generate more light than heat. Um, he I hope not. <laughs> Um, Henry Siegman is the president of the U.S. Middle East Project, an initiative focused on U.S. Middle East policy and on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This project was launched by the Council on Foreign Relations in 1994, and the first time that I met Henry Siegman was at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York in uh, the year 2000. 
the organization was established as an independent policy institute in 2006 under the chairmanship of General Brent Scowcroft. Henry Sigmund is also a visiting research professor at the Sir Joseph Hotung Middle East Program at SOAS, and it's a great, great pleasure to welcome this evening uh, Sir Joseph Hotung himself, uh, who uh, has done so much to promote the study of the Middle East at uh, SOAS. Henry Sigmund has published very extensively on the Middle East and, on the, and especially on the peace process. And he has consulted, uh, he's been a consultant to various governments and international agencies and NGOs. Uh, many of you would have come across his articles in, uh, in various places, particularly in the Financial Times, in the New York Times, in Haaretz, in the Huffington Post, and uh, last but not least, in the New York Review of Books. The title of his talk is Can Middle East Peace Be Imposed? I think I know the answer to this question, but we're all gathered here to hear his answer to his own question. So, uh, Henry, um, the floor is yours to answer your question. Thank you, Avi. And uh, let me first say how pleased I am, delighted I am, uh, not just to be here at LSE. Uh, it's my first visit to this venerable institution, uh, but also to meet such good friends, distinguished friends who, who are here, particularly Professor Avi Schleim, a man whose writings uh, I have relied on uh, in developing my own prejudices. Uh, and uh, Professor Fawaz Gurdjieff, who's an old friend, uh, the fact that he moved to London is a great loss for the academic community and those of us who work on the Middle East. So we hope it's a kind of a temporary assignment. And uh, we'll see you back in the States before too long. I also want to commend all of you uh, here in the audience who were clever enough to come early and get good seats. Uh, I would suggest, though, that uh, since it's a rather informal uh, occasion, perhaps some of you well, I, I'd li I like the illusion I'm addressing an audience that goes all the way back to the, to the back of the room. You may want to decide to move a bit closer, and you certainly are most welcome to do so. I prepared a rather formal statement uh, on the subject of the imposition of a peace process by the United States or by the international community uh, on the parties. And of course, since that subject was suggested, a great deal has happened uh, in the region. Much has happened in the region. Uh, amazing, transformative, changing the region before our eyes in ways none of us uh, anticipated. 
And I don't think anyone can speak about the region again in terms that we discussed it uh, in the past. Uh, so I, I will refer to, to these events uh, in the course of my remarks. Let me begin by saying that for me, the paradigm, uh, my favorite paradigm for understanding what is happening in the Middle East, why this conflict has gone now now for over 40 years, and virtually every attempt, every initiative to resolve the conflict, to end the occupation, uh, and to allow a Palestinian state to emerge, every one of them has failed is the story they used to, they used to tell in, in, in the heyday of the communist system in the Soviet Union. They used to say that the system there works because the workers pretend they're working and the government pretends it is paying them. Uh, and then at some point the whole thing collapsed. And I cite this, this uh, gallows humor from the, so the days of the Soviet Union because essentially this describes the, from my perspective the, the Israeli-Palestinian situation which is to say the Israelis have pretended for years now that they're trying to they're striving for peace and that they, they want to withdraw from the territories and they would welcome a, a Palestinian state. And the U.S., the United States, its closest ally and supporter, pretends it believes them. And I thought of that, uh, of this particular paradigm, as it were, in connection with what happened over this past weekend when the United States vetoed a resolution at the Security Council that said no more than that what the U.S. has pretended to say all along, that it is opposed to Israel's colonial project, to the settlements. The resolution said nothing more than that, and that it is an impediment to peace, and it vetoed its own position and in a sense exposed the nakedness of its position and the, it, it is in a sense the end of the pretense. You can no longer pretend uh, what, what has been pretended for all of these years. Now, there is a widely shared view with respect to the events that have occurred, let, let me suggest something. I'm going to I'm going to dis dispense with the paper, if I may, and uh, I'd rather shorten my speech and have more time for a general discussion, so we can we can address those issues that are really on your mind and. Uh, to do so in a more intimate and uh, informal manner. From the literature that I have read these past several days, what strikes me is that there is 
a consensus among most observers that what little chance there might have been for a resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, that has disappeared as a consequence of these earth-shaking, truly uh, earth-shaking events that have happened in the region these past several weeks. Because from an Israeli perspective, allowing a Palestinian, to, Palestinian state to emerge in the West Bank entails some very serious risks. Risks that particularly this government, headed by Netanyahu, was not willing or prepared to take. Consequently, in other words, the government of Israel needed to have all kinds of assurances that there would be stability, that there would be no great dangers, that Hamas would not move into the West Bank, etc. However, because of these radically destabilizing events, the risks from an Israeli perspective are so much greater now, and consequently it is difficult to imagine that a government of Israel could agree to the steps necessary to end the occupation, withdraw from the West Bank, and allow a sovereign Palestinian state to emerge. Now, that seems to be a, a fairly widely shared consensus. It is a consensus that I personally am very much in disagreement with. And I disagree with it for essentially two reasons. One, uh, not really a terribly substantive reason, namely, there never existed a possibility. There was never any prospect, whatever, in my view, of an Israeli-Palestinian accord uh, being achieved until now. It was simply out of the question for the simple reason that while there was this formal pretense on the part of, of various Israeli governments and particularly on the part of the, of, uh, the current Netanyahu government that Israel is, is seeking a way to end the conflict and to allow a Palestinian state to emerge. In fact, the prevailing orthodoxy, the prevailing policy of Israeli governments, or more specifically of the decision-making elites in Israel over the years, has been to prevent that from happening. So to say, you know, Israelis like to say, no one, no one likes peace more, is devoted to peace more than we. No one can preach to us about peace. Who wants peace more than we do? After all, we say shalom to each other when we say hello. Uh, but the fact, the fact of the matter is that that's a, that's a very empty kind of, uh, of declaration. We want peace. Of course, everyone wants peace. But the prevailing, predominant goal of Israeli policy, not declared, but hiding behind this 
this pretense that Israel is striving to achieve a peace accord with the Palestinians was a policy of colonizing the West Bank. It was not some kind of incidental growth like crabgrass that happens if you don't pay attention. It was a very explicit policy, a determined plan to create facts on the ground that would preclude a sovereign, truly self-governing Palestinian state. That was the plan all along. So the, the, the notion that in light of that, given the American pretense for various domestic political reasons that it has to pretend that, that in fact we believe there is a process going on that Israelis are committed to and that, and that wants to see a Palestinian state emerge, the response of the American role in helping that come about was one that was constrained, limited to the notion of facilitation. The parties want a peace process, consequently our role is to help facilitate it. That's what the whole question of, 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 uh, of uh, imposition of, a, of an agreement comes in. The U.S. decided up front that it cannot impose a peace, but since the parties want a peace process, want a, want a, a, a peaceful resolution, our role is to facilitate, but we can't go beyond uh, facilitation. Now, the, the, the concept of facilitation was based on the notion that which people at Foggy Bottom in Washington repeat, repeat even today, that we cannot want a peace more than the parties themselves do. And consequently, we cannot, we have no right to go beyond, beyond this facilitation role. The fact of the matter is, first of all, that it is very much possible for the United States to want peace more than the parties themselves do if one of the parties is more interested in territory than it is in peace. And, uh, and since America has deep and important strategic interests in the region, it can indeed have a greater interest in peace than uh, the parties do. So the, the principle itself is a shallow and meaningless one. But beyond that, the the issue that faces us today in the aftermath of the events that have now trans that are transforming uh, the region is what impact do they have do will these events have on on this so far failed peace process and what i propose to you is that as long as a government in israel governments of israel had reason to believe that they will always have the protection of the United States as they defy the international will uh, in term with respect to 
granting Palestinians withdrawing from, from the occupation and establishing a Palestinian, allowing Palestinians to, to establish a viable sovereign state of their own, as long as they have the protection of the United States, as long as they have the stability of authoritarian regimes that are prepared to suppress popular opinion in their own countries, where there exists, has existed, great anger, great resentment over, this, over the Israeli-Palestinian situation and over the failure of their own regimes to deal with it in a much more uh, constructive way, one that allows the, for, for this conflict to come to an end. As long as the American position is strong enough, is dominant enough to keep all of this under control, they can go on. They do not need to make any concessions. So in a sense, the logic here is the reverse of what we have assumed all along. Stability is not what facilitates an Israeli decision to give up the settlements and to allow a Palestinian state to emerge. It has the very opposite effect. It is only when that protection, that shield that the United States has provided Israel, keeping the region in check and allowing Israel to proceed with its settlement expansion, it is only when, when that kind of stability exists that it is possible for the colonial project to proceed. When that stability disappears, and Israel has reason to fear that the changes in the region are such that popular opinion, which incidentally probably has been doubly enraged by the spectacle at the Security Council over this past weekend, when this popular opinion can no longer be repressed, when the, a more open democratic governance prevails in the region, then the colonial project that Israel is engaged in loses the protection that it has and its ability to, to, to pursue it to its, to its, uh, to its end. For that reason, I, I believe that as these forces in the coming weeks and months gain an ascendancy, begin to, to find expression in, in, the various, in, the, in the governance of the various countries around, surrounding Israel, there what, what, is, what is likely to happen is that Israel will increasingly sense its vulnerability. What they will see, for example, is that uh, while I do not believe for a moment that Egypt will declare, will, will, will say, uh, will renounce its peace process with Israel and declare war, a state of war with Israel, but it certainly will abandon the coddling of Israel that Mubarak and his regime 
engaged in. And in fact, those changes are already evident because the, uh, I think it is called the June 16th movement, one of the opposition forces has already demanded of the Egyptian military, which is now running the country during a transitional period, has already demanded of them that they do not renew the delivery of uh, energy that have been disrupted briefly uh, from Egypt to Israel. I believe also that in these changed circumstances, very few Arab governments will want to continue supporting the Arab Peace Initiative. Uh, and its half-life, I think, will, is likely to conclude very in, in, in the coming days. If indeed the, the peace accord between, the peace ag agreement between Egypt and, and uh, Israel were to be terminated uh, in the coming months as a new government comes to the fore, it is very hard to imagine that Jordan would want to be the only country that retains normal relationship with Israel. In other words, what Israel is facing in the coming months as this process plays out, uh, it is a return to its earlier isolation in the 50s, in the days when of Zionism is racism, when that was the mood of the international community. And unfortunately, there are other developments within Israel itself that will reinforce these, the, the resurgence, the reappearance of these older sensibilities, if only because the current Israeli government has proven if Zionism is not racism, Certainly, Zionists can be racists. So, Israel is facing the prospect, a, a prospect of a return to an isolationism that is not imagined as it's been in previous years when Israel accused the world of, of delegitimizing the state of Israel, but a very real prospect of isolation, even of a pariah status, and in these circumstances, with a weakened United States in terms of its influence and credibility in the region, where the US, the US will does not necessarily prevail, where countries in the region are prepared to, for the first time to say no to Israel, and to say it very clearly, uh, without any consequences, the state of Israel becomes far more vulnerable in terms of all of its strategic concerns than it has ever been. And in those circumstances, it becomes easier for an American president who, be, who has to deal with American security interests and concerns in the, in the region that have been weakened and damaged. It becomes easier for him to assert those interests and to confront a Congress uh, that, that is largely in the thrall of, of the Israel lobby in the United States, and to say that a point has come where there are certain things we can no longer do, we cannot abide, we cannot seem to support without 
incurring, incurring a price in, in terms of American interests that the country can no longer abide. So for all of these reasons, well, I think none of these guarantee, none of these assure a resolution of the conflict overnight, but I think the dynamics, the chemistry of the relationships is changing so radically that this now becomes a possibility. Now, Congress people may still, uh, those who are beholden to the lobby may still maintain their, their, their old positions, but it'll become more, there'll be more political daylight for an American president to, to, to assert the American interest and even to prevail. So these are some thoughts that I wanted to share with you and to be try to be responsive to questions and uh, a discussion of this and related issues. Thank you very, very much uh, indeed. And um, I think it was quite a, a good move on your part to depart from your former statement that you had prepared and to give your thoughts in a much more spontaneous um, way because your thinking was very, very rigorous and very penetrating and I think you've given us in a very short time an analysis of what was the problem with the so-called peace process in the past and why the peace process never yielded peace between Israel and the Palestinians and the significance of the change that is sweeping throughout uh, the Arab world today from Tunisia to Bahrain and the implications for Israel's policy, for Israel's position in the conflict and the implications for Israeli-American uh, relations. So uh, if I may say so, this is the most brilliant uh, analysis that I've heard of the changes in the Arab world and how they impact on the international relations of the entire region. So I'm not going to begin with um, by abusing the normal speaker's um, uh, chairman's uh, prerogative and asking the first question. I'm going to open up um, this to discussion and um, Dr. Uh, Professor Rosemary Hollis gets the first question or comment. Thank you very much. Henry, I lost you when you got to the United States uh, changing position now because the logic of the situation is such that it would be in the United States' interests not to put up with the Israelis needing to colonize the West Bank and control Gaza anymore. And I don't see why that's new. And I don't see why, if they were so capable of living the lie before, they have going to suddenly wake up. Well, that's, that's not an unreasonable question. <laughs> but the reason I think why they will not be able to sustain the lie is because it has become so transparently false. And more importantly, uh, as long as the U.S. position 
was a strong one in the region. As long as they had uh, relationships by, by providing a defense, uh, a security umbrella for the regimes in the region, they were able to count on, on those countries to play along. That is to say, to, to perhaps to, to, to buy into that pretense. I don't want to make too much of, of, the, of the communist story, but the point is that the U.S. had the ability to have its way, and the various regimes could not challenge them. Their streets, however, the streets in those countries, the so-called Arab street, knew the score. They knew that Palestinians were being sold out. They knew one doesn't have to be, one doesn't have to have, you know, great skills and insight to understand that the settlements as that, that moved from, that, that there were 200,000 settlers in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank when the Oslo Accords were signed, and they are over half a million today. Can I, so, can I ask you, how are people like Sarah Palin going to suddenly get it? Oh, well, if Sarah, Sarah I totally agree with you. If Sarah Palin were to be our next president, uh, I, I, I don't think I would uh, express any optimism about uh, the American position changing. or this. But even a Sarah Palin would find I doubt, incidentally, that this will happen. I certainly hope and pray it won't. But uh, even if she were a, uh, to, to run for office and to be, to be our next president, heaven help us, she would discover that she cannot have her way in the region, that Israel's neighbors will not be dictated to by the, by the U.S. because the strong men there will, will have disappeared. They're, 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 okay, so that's the big difference. I will also tell you that, as you know, that it's also a question of the American interest. America, it's not just the Israeli interest as the Israelis choose to define it. The question is what are the American interests? And anyone who comes into the White House comes face to face if nothing else, with a military establishment in the United States that is deeply distressed by the veto, incidentally, deeply distressed about it, deeply distressed by this constant uh, uh, disposition of our State Department and even the White House to back down and to permit uh, Netanyahu's government to have its way on these issues because they say this was expressed by Petraeus not long ago but now it has gone beyond Petraeus and there is considerable agitation among the military leadership about the dangers and vulnerabilities that have been created by this policy this American policy for the troops in the region uh, I, I say this not in, a, in an abstract way, but on the basis of discussions, people who have come to us to say, you must do something because of the American, because of the, uh, the vulnerabilities created for, 
for American soldiers in the area. So that's a, a Palin would also have to, to, to deal with those realities. Sarah Palin had a tutorial an hour with Henry Kissinger on foreign policy. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, but now she would need another tutorial uh, from, um, from Kissinger. Uh, Ellen Darndorf, formerly of the LSE. From the LSC, Ellen Darndorf used to be. Darndorf, what the LSC? Oh, Ellen Darndorf used to be a research fellow in the government department at LSC. Oh, LSC. Can you speak up a little? I have difficulty. It's, it's a good question, it's an important question, and it's a question that's very difficult to answer, certainly for me, because one doesn't really know. <coughs> uh, it, it's not, in the first instance, it's not a question of who are the people around him, but what are his own views on the subject? Because if he has clear views, and has a very clear understanding of what the, what the country's national interest is, he will, put, he will have people around him who see it that way as well. And his choice of people depends on, on his own convictions, if he has clear convictions. The assumption all along has been, and I have shared in, in, in that assumption, that he, under, he gets it. He's smart, he understands. What the, what what the what needs to be done, and he is not deceived by by Bibi Netanyahu shtick. He under he under, he knows what's going what's happening. So the problem, rather, is one of dealing with the domestic political realities around him. So therefore, your question is, can he pull it off? Is really a very important question. I do not know the answer to that, because it is not just. The question isn't only who are his Middle Eastern advisors. We know who they are at the moment, and they can be changed. Uh, and I have been told by one of, one of them that they were divided on the question, for example, on the issue of the veto. Two of them 
opposed the veto, and two of them were in favor of it. Ultimately, the decision was taken not by the Middle Eastern experts, but it was taken about the people who worry about his re-election. So it is very hard to say, listening to his Cairo speech, one would come to the conclusion he can and will do it. But then this is two years later, and uh, it is very embarrassing uh, when one reads that the man who made that speech in Cairo was pleading at first with, with who? The President of the United States, the most powerful country in the world, was pleading with Mahmoud Abbas to please withdraw that resolution from the UN, begging him. And as I say, as I said earlier, the situation has changed. People have learned, including Abbas. Even Abbas learned you can say no to the President of the United States, which is an indication of how things, how the world has changed, uh, as a consequence of what is happening uh, all around. The President then decided to threaten him. Imagine, not to threaten the people who are who, 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 who are running the occupation, but threatening the victims for p placing a resolution on the table which says nothing more than what the United States and this president has been saying all along. In light of that, I no longer feel any confidence in saying to you, yes, he can do it. I believe it can be done. I believe that the changing circumstances, for reasons I've described, will allow an American president to take a much tougher position. Whether he will or not, I have no idea. Patrick Seale. I need you to speak up.
instinct of theirs should be encouraged. How, 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 to, how to get them, you see, uh, Cameron, everybody thought David Cameron was, was too preoccupied with domestic affairs, but I hear today that he's in Cairo. Uh, William Hague, I don't think he knows much about this particular problem. He may not have the stuffing for it. <coughs> but, but there are people in three or four European countries who are very concerned about this and feel that something should be done. Now, what do you think about that? Well, certainly on the subject of what Europeans can do, I, I would clearly defer to you. Uh, but my impression is that, again, you know, the world, it is a changing. It is the first time that I witnessed at the United Nations every major European, the Europe, the European countries who voted at the Security Council, every one of them voted contrary and in defiance of the American position. That never happened before with the Quartet. <coughs> and with, uh, I think that, that this tendency is likely to be reinforced in the weeks and months ahead rather than, than move back to where it was. Russia, China, we've never seen that before. And this is, even as these events are, are so fresh that one doesn't know from one day to the next what, what is happening in the region. So, I would say to you, absolutely yes, Europe does have now, in these changing circumstances, a much more important role to play, uh, and a role that can embarrass American policy and help it come to terms with these new realities as well. I think you may, you may know that only recently uh, a group of very distinguished former European heads of state, including von Weizsäcker, in fact, uh, uh, Rosie uh, is very much involved uh, in in uh, in that project. Uh, the the um, former presidents, former prime ministers, foreign ministers, and so on—a group of about thirty of very distinguished senior European officials, former officials—are uh, now on a regular basis dealing with this issue. It, with their own governments, addressing their own governments, and the EU, uh, the, the European Commission, the European uh, Council. And there is a dialogue developing between them and those officials uh, on, on, on these very issues, and how, how, how Europe can play a role that is not simply a, a uh, you know, following the American lead uh, uh, as they have been in, in, in the past. So I, I think that that is very much part of the change that we are likely to see in the, in the European role itself will, will push that change along in ways that we're not prepared to do in the past. Speak more loudly. Oh, sorry. This is like the 1990s when people said Clinton was more favorable towards the Palestinians. So you had a new president in who would be able to 
persuade the Israelis to stop building settlements. But we have seen this before, because in 1995 and 1997, we had two Security Council resolutions built to do with the settlements. So this has happened before. So what's, what's this, like 15 years ago? So we've had Security Council resolutions vetoed. We've had the Europeans, people saying this is their, this is their moment. There's been no change. And during the 1990s, in, in the US, amongst the various pro-Israeli groups, they were saying that the peace process was a threat, and they didn't want the Israelis to be pushed. Now that we have this external threat that you're talking about, and what I have been reading in the various papers, they're saying that this is the time not to put pressure on Israel. We should rally around Israel, because now they're facing threats, as you said, back in the 1950s. So now it's time not to put any pressure on Israel. So I don't follow your particular <coughs> logic. You suddenly think that it's going to be an improved situation. And we've seen this before back in the 1990s. Not much has changed, 15 years. Can you give me a true summary yes. of the question? Uh, that, um, there, were uh, there were Security Council, America used the Security Council uh, veto to defeat um, resolutions critical of Israeli settlements uh, in the, under Clinton. And today, America's friends, uh, today Israel's friends in America are saying that because of the new threats, because of the changes, because of the revolution in the Arab world, it's not the time to put pressure on Israel. So um, uh, support for Israel in America will be intensified and there will be less pressure uh, on, on Israel to, um, to withdraw from the West no. Bank. Uh, I, I, I should say, incidentally, that the problem is mine. I have a hearing problem. Uh, so I, I, uh, I'm sorry that we do not have mics to go around when you, when you ask your questions. Um, of course, there will always be apologists for Israeli policy who will make that argument. But, and they've made it all along. They've always said this is not the time to put pressure. That when, when things seem to be stable and under control, that was not the time to put pressure. There was, when, uh, when there was terrorism, that certainly was not a, during, during the, uh, the Intifada, that was not a time to put pressure on Israel. When a new government came in that renounced terror and violence, and in fact, it stopped completely, turned out that this too was not a time to put pressure on Israel. Uh, it seems to me, and you know, it may not turn out to be that way, but it seems to me that what, is, what we see playing out in the region now will so dramatically change the chemistry of that situation that it'll be very difficult for an American administration to try to justify the support it is giving to a project that is virtually guaranteeing the 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 closing the the closing of the door to a Palestinian state and the the issue of what one does at that point what what that situation looks like at, at that point becomes not abstract but real in other words what 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 is happening is that you have on the ground 
you have a population of millions of Palestinians who on the one hand are told there really is no room for a state anymore in the West Bank because our settlements will not be removed. And at the same time, you are too foreign an element to be given citizenship and equal rights in the state of Israel. That is a position that defines an apartheid situation, the permanent denial of rights to millions of people. The fact is that Israelis have warned, even Israeli uh, uh, leaders, prime ministers, have warned that this is a possible eventuality. This might happen if there is no border between the Jewish state and a Palestinian state. But they have always said that someday there will be a Palestinian majority, an Arab majority in the state of Israel, and that's when the problem would arise. That's not true. The problem arises even with a minority. You cannot claim to be a democratic state. You cannot claim to have a democracy if a large element of your population, even if it is in the minority, is permanently denied all rights, citizenship rights, human rights, civil rights, voting rights, and at the same time told, but you cannot, you cannot have a state of your own. We cannot accept uh, Arab sovereignty. And, and so that, that situation exists today. This is not a future possibility. Of course, there is a democratic, uh, there is a, a, a democratic regime for it, it, within Israel's old international borders. But a democracy that is reserved for a particular segment of the population, for a particular ethnic and religious group, and denied to to another group because of its ethnic identity, is the opposite of democracy. That is exactly what South Africa was like during the apartheid days, though there, there was a, ra a racial divide. So this becomes an impossible situation to sustain, particularly, as I say, when you have millions of people surrounding the state of Israel. You know, the state of Israel is not in the midst of Kansas or Iowa. The state of Israel is, is in the midst of, of, of an Arab world. And once that world is asserting itself, the, the political realities change very dramatically. Um, I'm not sure yet what is your answer to the question, can Middle East peace be imposed? Um, let, so me answer, ask, let me answer that answer question. That more directly, and how, how can it be imposed? Yes, let me tell you how it can be imposed. In a sense, it can be imposed because it doesn't need to be imposed. And what I mean by that is the following. Uh, what is required is not that America say to Israel, we insist that you adopt these specific policies. The United States, and let's assume for a moment that we're still dealing with a democratic Israel. I would, I would challenge that today that is no longer the Israeli reality. But let us, let us assume that's the case. The United States says to Israel, we cannot tell a democratic country what its policies have to be. <coughs> but you know something? We're a democratic country too. So we have a right to fashion our own policies. 
So while we have no intention of punishing our, our good ally, but we also cannot be expected to keep rewarding you. To reward you for what? For, for damaging and harming America's interests with your policy? You're free to do that. We cannot let prevent you. But we will not reward you for that any longer, which means we stop funding and providing billions of dollars every year, which buy the guns and the tanks and, and the, the warplanes, which impose the colonial project in the West Bank. We will stop funding that. We are a democracy in America, and we have a right to say, you know, Israel should not dictate our policies. We will not, they shouldn't impose on us, and we won't impose on them. And once that, again, the, this, this shield uh, that America has provided, economically, security-wise, militarily, and so on, if that is removed, then I cannot see any, gov any Isra Israeli government that uh, would decide to, to continue defying not only uh, American opinion, but international opinion. Yes, please, uh, you're next. is full of optimistic reports about what is happening um, in the Arab world, about the triumph of um, freedom and democracy, mm -hmm. but the future is very uncertain, and how do you see the future? And the role of the military. Yes. And the role of the military. Well, the, the future in, in, in the Arab world, or in the... Well, I, I cannot tell you with any certainty, and, and uh, it would be foolish of me uh, to do that, exactly how these uh, transformations uh, in the region, how these revolutions will play out, what kinds of, what, kind, what we will see six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. And if, for example, we, we will, the military regime in, in, in Egypt uh, would, turn out, would turn out to be not just a vehicle for a transition to a more democratic, representative, open society, but rather some kind of a new version of Nasserism, that of course would, would, uh, would, would be very disappointing and might preclude the more optimistic take that I have on what is likely to happen. I cannot 
I must tell you, I cannot imagine having seen on the television screen what people in the region are suddenly prepared to do to risk their lives, the lives of their children, uh, as they face down uh, machine guns and, and firings and so on, for, in order to, to, to recapture uh, you know, their own identity, their, their own dignity. I can't imagine that this is a process that can be reversed. So I tend to be very optimistic about uh, how these forces will play out. And I cannot believe that, uh, that the, the, the changed reality in the region will be able to tolerate a, a situation where, where millions of Arabs live under the domination uh, of, of a particular state. That's simply, I, I cannot imagine that uh, in the end that is sustainable. Please. Question. The first question is, uh, if there is a democratic government in Egypt, what are the costs, what are the, the chances, um, uh, what the are the costs yeah. of cancelling the peace no. treaty, the uh, no. what are the costs and benefits of cancelling mm -hmm. the peace treaty uh, with Israel? Well, this, well, let's hear the answer to the first question and then we'll go back to yeah. the second. I, I, I don't want to pose here as, uh, as uh, you know, having answers to all of the uncertainties in the future. So we're all guessing here. Uh, up until recently, my guesses were all totally pessimistic. And now I'm prepared to, to guess in a more optimistic vein. I do not believe that a new, more open regime is going to, because it is going to, uh, one of its first things is simply to cancel the peace treaty with Israel. I don't think that is likely to happen. Uh, but I also do not believe that, the, that such a regime is going to play along with uh, Israeli governments in uh, sustaining, helping them sustain the occupation. For example, one of the first things that happened uh, these past few days is that Gaza was opened. 
And people who, were, who couldn't get into Gaza or couldn't come out to Gaza for the first time were able to come in and out. Couldn't happen under, didn't happen under Mubarak. It did happen, of course, when the walls were, there, were, there was an occasion when, when the walls were torn down. But uh, the, the policy was, the policy was to allow Israel to maintain its chokehold on a million and a half civilians who lived in Gaza and to deny them food and so on. So that kind of thing is not going to continue. So on the one hand, I don't think it, Egypt will say we prefer having a state of war with Israel. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but an Israeli, uh, 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 an Egyptian government that is representative of the sentiments of the people will take a totally different approach to a, a, an Israeli government that, that denies the Palestinians, uh, that, that the anger of the people, the resentment over Israeli policy will find expression in Egypt's policies in various ways. And for, for the Israelis, of course, that is a, a very serious matter. The, your second question. Was your second question. Well, that's, it's, it's really not a question, it's a statement. <laughs> and I, I agree with the statement. That one, of the, one, one of the defining aspects of this situation here is that the, the discussion, the, de the debate, the dialogue that is going on is not a, a dialogue about the denial, how does one deal with the denial of independence and basic human rights and so on to millions of Palestinians who the United Nations recognized already in 47 have a legitimate claim to patrimony in close to half of what was Palestine. That is not, that's not the, the, the dialogue that is going on now with the United States. The dialogue is, how do you protect Israel's security? That has been the focus of the debates carried on, the discussions, the narrative uh, uh, that, that has been the narrative of the past. That, I believe, will change. The focus will be less on the security, you know, what are Israel's security needs, but rather, how do you put an end to the deprivations uh, inflicted on, a, on millions of people who are, not, who are, on the one hand, not allowed to become citizens of, of, of a, of a uh, state that includes all of the residents, and on the other hand, denied, denied all rights, uh, de denied a right to have a state of their own. The, so that, that is a big change if, in fact, 
the focus goes away from Israel's security concerns to, to the basic rights of millions of people who've lived without those rights. Yes, please. about Israel and what it wants, but what do the Palestinians want? Well, I don't think that defies anyone's imagination of what the Palestinians want. People who live behind barbed wire uh, fence and, and walls and fences, they want freedom. And they want freedom as they have said, certainly the, Fat, the, the Palestinian Authority under the leadership of Abbas has made it very clear, they want a state, a, a, a sovereignty uh, of their own that conforms to international law. That is what they want. They've said they're not going to seek it by violent means. They, they've made that very clear and in fact there's virtually no terrorism today that can be used as a pretext for denying them that. The interesting thing is, well, there is, of course, a serious problem, a Palestinian problem, and that problem is the division between Hamas and Fatah. And as long as that is not healed, it is impossible to, to imagine how an agreement between the two sides uh, can be achieved. But the, so, so that, that is a problem on the Palestinian side. But there are Israelis who are not part of the, of the peacenik left who have argued all along that there is no way of getting a united Palestinian front without allowing Hamas to join in the process, to, to welcome their participation in the process, provided certain basic ground rules are, are observed, at least initially. Hopefully that it would bring about greater acceptance, greater normalcy. Now that Hamas has said categorically, and the problem is if we don't pay attention or we deny the, the changes that have occurred within Hamas itself, Hamas has stated categorically, not through this or that spokesman, but through Michal, their leader, that if Israel were to agree to a Palestinian state along the 67 borders, Hamas would cease its violent resistance against Israel. But up until then, they refused to, as a matter of principle, to concede that they haven't got a right to resort to violence if they're denied their freedom. 
But they have said, and this is a radical departure from the positions they've taken in the past, that they are, they are prepared to end a, their policy of violence if Israel were to agree to a state within the, within the 67 borders. The problem is, of course, that Israel has taken the position and the U.S. has supported that position. In fact, there was a time when it even instigated that position. And uh, I don't want to go into that now. But uh, the, the position Israel has is that they can be a a an agreement with Palestinians only if Hamas is excluded. And the great threat is that perhaps Hamas might someday move from Gaza into the West Bank. Uh, that is simply unacceptable. If the, if the basic terms for an agreement are in conformity with international law, uh, an agreement is possible that includes Hamas. Well, let, let me uh, clarify that point. When I say peace can be imposed, what, what I'm suggesting is that whether Israel accepts an arrangement that allows a Palestinian state to come into being or not depends on its own cost-benefit calculations. Up until now, Israeli leaders, Israeli governments, and even non-governmental circles that played an important role in shaping Israeli policy uh, have believed that th whatever the cost may be in pursuing Israel's uh, settlement project, whose purpose it is to maintain Israeli control from the river to the sea. That is the goal. Whatever the cost is, it's a cost, and it may be uh, hurting relations with the U.S., but it's an acceptable cost in the end because the Israel lobby will always somehow soften the pain that comes from the United States. So they're, 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 they are going ahead with the project. When that cost-benefit calculation changes, then when the, when the pain of pursuing this goal and, and resisting a peace accord that allows a genuine Palestinian state to emerge, when the cost of that exceeds, uh, the, 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 the downside exceeds the upside, that is a way of imposing, because the decision becomes an Israeli decision. I'm, I'm always reminded in, in my early religious studies, uh, in, in Jewish law, uh, a divorce has to be given by the husband uh, in a divorce proceeding to his wife out of his free will. A woman in classic uh, Jewish law, a woman cannot force uh, a husband to give her a, a, a divorce. Uh, 
there has to be, he has to be, you can't impose that on the man. Ne nevertheless, as rabbinic law developed, they decided you put the man in prison, if, if there were grounds for the divorce, until he finally says, okay. So the, the rabbis asked, but it has to be of his free will. They said, well, yes, at that point, that's his will. If he, if. So uh, that to me has, has always been the model <clears throat> of how you impose, how you get the Israelis to say, yes, this is really what we want to do. No, not the religious fanatics, but Israel is not overwhelmingly religious fanatics. They play a role, but there are other, there, there are other people in Israel too. There are, the, the majority of Israelis are not religious fanatics. Uh, some of them are religious and some of them are complete, but not fanatics. And many of them are totally secular. So it's wrong to assume that uh, religious fanatics will always have, have their of the day. I think even people who are not religious and are not particularly ideological in Israel do not mind if the religious fanatics proceed with a settlement project. You know, if they could have it all, why not? But if they cannot have it all because the cost becomes too great, they will, they will be the first to say, enough. The whole tenor of Henry Siegman's analysis is that uh, America doesn't need to order Israel to end the occupation. America doesn't need to coerce Israel. America doesn't need to impose a settlement on Israel uh, against its will. America only needs to assert its own independence. Um, America um, doesn't owe Israel a living. And this reminds me of a conversation between a liberal American Jewish uh, leader, Nahum Goldman, and uh, uh, Moshe Dayan, the Israeli defense minister. Dayan said to Goldman, our American friends give us money, they give us arms, and they give us advice. Uh, we take the money, we take the arms, and we decline the advice. And Goldman said to him, and what would you do if America made the money and the arms conditional on accepting our advice? And I answered to him, uh, then we would have to listen to you. And no American president until today has made this, that support conditional. Um, but uh, the talk that we have just heard gives us ground for optimism, for thinking that the situation is changing, uh, the geostrategic landscape in the Middle East is changing, um, and Israel is being left behind, and this, the position of America is changing as well. The perception of American interests is changing. So what I take from your talk is some hope that what has happened in the past with Israel having it all its own way is not necessarily what is going to happen in the future. Uh, this is my roundabout way of saying thank you to you for a most illuminating um, talk and for dealing so um, fully and persuasively with all our questions. So please 
join me in thanking Henry Sigmund for his talk.